The Rockefeller Foundation advances new frontiers of science, data, policy, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and economic mobility. Sign up for our newsletter and follow us on Twitter at RockefellerFDN. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Despite a strong economy, working families in America are struggling. The cost of housing, childcare, and health care continue to rise, and many families are finding it hard to make ends meet. On February 26th, the Washington Post brought together key government officials, academics, and advocates for an in-depth look at the plight of working families and low-income workers in the U.S. In this segment, a diverse group of women spotlight the challenges working mothers face in the U.S., including the soaring cost of childcare, parental leave policies, and work-life balance. Let's listen. Hello again, I'm Libby Casey, on-air reporter and anchor here at the Washington Post, and I'm delighted to introduce my guests. Ai-jin Poo, co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, hello. Kendra Brooks, newly elected member of the Philadelphia City Council, thank you for being here. And Juliana Goldman, former correspondent for CBS News and Bloomberg News, thank you for being here. And a reminder that if you have questions for our audience, you can jump on Twitter and use that hashtag post live and we'll share them with our guests. So uh, let's start with you, Councilwoman Member Brooks. So you are a single mother of five, which is amazing. Uh, a lot of us are mothers and I don't, five is impressive. Um, you're also a grandmother. Uh, so you raised a family on your own and now you're a city councilwoman. How have the experiences that you've lived shaped your politics? Um, I think um, number one is that I worked my way through college. I went through CCP, I was a nursing assistant. Um, just a persistent to break what the stereotype of a teenage mom. I had my oldest daughter at 18, um, and I refused to be another statistic. So I worked my way to community college, and then I went to Temple, and then I got an MBA. And in the process of that, I had children along the way and adopted one. So one is not my birth child, but the importance of family and what it looks like to build a legacy for the next generation. So for me, um, Education was my pathway, you know, not only to break the statistic of a teenage mom, but to be able to sustain my family in a way that um, would make my family proud and also to be an example for my daughters. I have my oldest is 29. I have a 21-year-old, 20-year-old, 15-year-old, and 11. Wow. All girls. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> Those who have daughters already know what that's like. Um, <laughs> and then the, the, the young women that come with them. You know, so I think, um, you know, just continue to be that example. Um, I never would have saw myself as an elected official. Um, I've always been a part of movement spaces, um, fighting for, you know, what's right in my community, what's right for women, what's right for people with disabilities, um, and being that, that voice when people feel like they couldn't be heard. And that pathway is what led me into politics. If someone would have asked me two years ago, would I be a city council person? I was like, oh, never. Um, what, did it take, what did it take for you to make that step? So being Trump, <laughs> um, I'm being honest, and just being tired of like systems of oppression that I see hovering over my community. I live in a community that I grew up in. Um, uh, predominantly African-American, low income, and just being or sh 
fighting for the changes that we need to see. So we're talking about um, our schools are closing drastically in our neighborhood. We talk about underfunding of schools across the city. We talk about um, the effects of redlining that eventually led to gentrification and displacement. We talk about a lack of jobs or opportunity for jobs. And all of those things is kind of what push me to take the next step as an activist. And then as, you know, I ask myself the question, if not me, then whom? I've experienced a lot of these issues firsthand, and we need people in politics that are able to speak to the people, not the statistics, not the numbers, but the people that are primarily affected by these issues. Ijen, your organization advocates for the rights of domestic workers in this country, many of whom are immigrants, women of color, uh, working class mothers. What are the biggest challenges that, that you hear from them that they're facing? Well, it's interesting because as working mothers, mm -hmm. their profession is to support other working mothers. Mm -hmm. And it's some of the most important work in our entire economy. If you think about I mean, what could be more important than caring for children, ensuring that the aging population can live with dignity, right? And yet it's some of the most undervalued work in our entire workforce. The average annual income of a home care worker is $16,000 per year. So the people we're counting on as professionals to care for us and our families can't take care of their own on the income that they earn. And it's work that doesn't have access to a safety net, no benefits, no job security, and oftentimes no training or career pathways. So it's a, it's a really tough situation. And we're also looking at jobs that are really going to be a large share of the jobs of the future, because these are jobs that are not going to be outsourced, right? And they're not going to be automated. They've been trying to build a robot to fold a towel in a lab in LA for 11 years, <laughs> and they still haven't been successful. So for the foreseeable future, we're going to need humans doing this work. And right now, it's poverty wage work where you can't survive. And that's the opportunity, is to transform them, right? The way that manufacturing jobs were once dangerous poverty wage jobs and they became the pathway to the American dream. We can do that for caregiving and low wage service jobs today. We'll be talking more about that certainly. I want to bring Juliana into the conversation. So you wrote a piece for The Atlantic back in 2018 uh, that went viral and, and it was about your story about being a working mom and trying to balance that like the mom part of it with a high demand profession. What do you think you tapped into? You know, it's interesting. So that piece actually completely coincidentally uh, was published the day after my daughter was born. So a lot of oh <laughs> the incoming and the reaction to it, um, I took in from my hospital bed. Um, so I've gone back and, and looked at some of that now. And, you know, I, I set out to, to interview and, and look into anti-mom bias, the motherhood penalty, uh, that struck a chord with me as I was weighing whether or not to stay on in, in TV news. Um, and so the piece focused on uh, television news. But I heard from women across um, local news, producers, uh, and then other industries, uh, law, uh, consulting, medicine. and. You know, the, the struggle is real. The work-life balance is something that mothers, mothers deal with day in and day out. I mean, we, we came here this morning. This is our second shift for many of us. Uh, we already had, had the mom shift this morning. And so I think people 
you know, across, across sectors, across industry, feel as though they've worked really hard, but they're being let down uh, at the corporate and at the government level. What did you feel like you were weighing personally um, in, in your questions of like how much you could lean in to your career and what was realistic and practical given the demands of family? Right. So I felt like I had spent 15 years leaning into my career uh, so that by the time I came back from maternity leave and had a child and this whole other life that I'd have some more leverage or, or currency to be able to ask for some accommodations. Um, and I found- And accommodations being, I encourage you to go read Juliana's piece, yeah. but co TV correspondents travel all the time, but there are jobs in TV news where you can be home-based. You can have a more regular schedule that's and not right. get that call to say, you've got to be on a plane in an hour. Well, that's right. And, and so I was a general assignment correspondent, which meant covering anything and everything under the sun. Uh, you know, you could get a call at three o'clock in the morning saying you needed to be in Baltimore uh, for a 7 a.m. live shot for the morning show, uh, or you'd be at um, the office in the middle of the day and you'd have to run out and be somewhere you know, on location for that night's evening news. And that meant trying to figure out you know, who was going to take uh, care of my child uh, in, in the evening. Um, and I was looking for something that had just a little more predictability, a little more flexibility. Um, for me, it was so difficult because I felt like my, like I didn't have any less ambition professionally, um, but that sacrifice of being away um, from my child, it had to feel like it was worth it. Um, and I, I didn't feel like signing another three years as a general assignment correspondent matched that. Um, and it was difficult. You know, I wondered whether or not I was just not cut out for television news, or whether there were institutional biases that were forcing me out. And again, this was around the time of Me Too, and so there were more conversations about um, the motherhood penalty and anti-mom bias. Um, and you know, it's it's not it's not black and white. It's it's very difficult to put your finger on that, um, but it exists. There's unique circumstances in TV news, but then that also um, apply across industries. Let's stay with this for a moment and talk about employers and what employers can do to, to, uh, to, to sort of ease that burden and, and make both working and being a parent viable. Um, so there are many, you know, many different um, roads we can go down on this. I think, one, it takes having women in, in leadership positions um, at companies, I think, it takes, um, takes them setting a tone, a culture where women can come in, and men for that matter, and that they're able to talk about very openly you know, the lives that they, that they also have. You shouldn't feel like, um, like you're in, a, in a, a job where you're, you have to work like you don't have any children. Um, and so there, there should be an opus, openness and transparency there. Um, you know, there's also an interesting piece in Harvard, Harvard Business Review uh, that's come out over the last few days in this latest issue. And the authors, they tested this long-held truth that women are um, derailed from their, their careers and, and they don't advance uh, because they can't handle the competing demands of, of uh, you know, the work-life balance. 
And what they found is that, like most things in life, it's way more nuanced than that. Um, and both men and women suffer from you know, an overworked culture of this 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week um, lifestyle of needing to be on call all the time. Uh, and that in this one particular company that they studied, um, you know, the company offered accommodations. More women took advantage of those accommodations than men. And what they ended up finding was that the women were then derailed from their careers. They lost economic advancement and so forth. And so their conclusion is that overall, there just needs to be a general change in this 24-hour, seven-day-a-week overwork culture, uh, and that that'll alleviate a lot of the burden uh, that families face. Uh, Councilmember Brooks, let's talk about maternity, paid maternity leave, paid parental leave. Let's broaden it out that way. How, how are you looking at that now through the lens of someone who will be helping to shape policy? Yes, we just introduced some legislation around paid sick leave, um, and it's connected to FMLA. It's 12 weeks um, paid, male or female, to ensure that people have the right to you know, raise family, adopt children, take care of loved ones, um, because we see a severe, to what um, Juliana said, um, we see that the, the hustle and bustle of life is preventing people from being good caretakers or even just taking care of themselves. So our goal is to uh, put it and um, introduce this, we introduce this legislation and that it would scale down from large businesses then to mid-sized businesses and to smaller businesses over a series of time to make sure that you know workers have the right um, to take care of their families. And I wanna like lead into like domestic workers and the work of, um, you know, child care providers and elder care providers, um, for the first 12 weeks of any illness or after having a child, you really don't want to just leave your loved ones with anyone. And we need to make sure that we're providing workers the quality of life. That's a quality of life issue. You can't work well if you don't feel that the things that are most important to you are secure. So um, I'm, I'm hoping this legislation goes through and we'll be able to kind of set a new trend for Philadelphia and hopefully eventually the nation. Hi, Jen. Well, Philadelphia, I just want to shout out Philadelphia because they just passed, thank you, Councilmember Brooks, um, a domestic workers bill of rights that granted portable paid time off to 16,000 domestic workers for the first time in the country. Really huge breakthrough. Um, and I think what we're speaking to is just a much larger challenge, which is that we American families, especially working families, are in a totally different environment than we were when our safety net was put into place and our existing policy framework. So right now, there really isn't a care infrastructure to support working families. It used to be our default infrastructure was that women would stay home and take care of family members. That hasn't been our reality for decades. And people are living longer than ever before because of advances in healthcare and technology. And the boomers are aging at a rate of 10,000 people per day turning 70. And so we've added an entire generation onto our family lifespans. And none of our policies are designed for that. So you have this new phenomenon of the sandwich generation caregivers who are panini between the pressures of caring for their aging loved ones and their children, and they have no support in place. 
So we need child care. We need universal access to family care, child care, long-term care, paid family leave, as a new starting point for families in the 21st century. I want you to talk more about this, this panini effect rather than just, just sandwich, but really being squeezed. And you wrote a book called The Age of Dignity about caregiving in America. Yeah. What are some of the solutions as, as, as you're identifying, all of you are identifying some of the problems that are hurting families? Absolutely. So I think everything from the kind of paid family leave legislation that Councilmember Brooks talked about to um, universal child care, universal long-term care. Washington State just passed the Washington State Long-Term Care Trust Act, which is the first social insurance-based long-term care bill in the country. Um, and our vision is that one day we should have universal family care, the idea that we should all be contributing to a public fund that we can all benefit from that helps us afford child care, long-term care, and paid family leave. You know, this question of how to help moms and families um, doesn't just start when the baby is born. There's also, of course, the concern about maternal mortality and making sure that there's adequate health care for people as they're becoming moms and as they're going into the health care system. So Council Member Brooks, you know, as we look at this, you know, I think it's fair to say a crisis in maternal mortality among African-American women in this country who are dying at a rate of three or four times at the rate of, of white mothers. What can we do as a society to tackle this? Um, the number one thing that I would push is we need universal health care. You know, we keep in mind that, you know, access to quality health care um, is important for all women, especially women of color, um, and definitely get out prejudice and bias and races. Um, behavior within healthcare is very important because some of the uh, female mortality, the, the child birth mortality issues we see around African Americans is grounded in racism. Um, and we had to call that out and continue to work on parameters to end that. Um, and you know, in Philadelphia, we're looking at some re reproductive justice um, initiative to roll out over the next year. And um, I think that that would be the first step to making sure that we're addressing the, in the uh, addressing the issue of uh, mortality around black women and making sure that it becomes a high priority issue moving forward. So you know, as we look at uh, the women who are doing the caretaking of so many families in this country, what are the other ways to, to raise the visibility and, and not just help with wages and healthcare, but also just acknowledge how important this work is to families, but also to society functioning? I mean, I think we should have Caregiver Appreciation Day every day. <laughs> but I think there are many ways to honor the caregivers and the women who support us in our lives. First, just recognizing the work, every opportunity we get. Um, we always start our meetings by just giving a shout out, sending some love to the women who, whose work powers everything else in our economy. Um, and I think just recognizing that this is real work. This is not. We, we still refer to care work as help, mm -hmm. right? And until we recognize that this is a profession like any other and really value it as such, I, I think it's always gonna be a struggle. So each of us can play a role, I think, in treating this workforce as the professionals they are and the incredibly important part of the caregiving solutions all of our families need for the future. 
I think just in conversations that women have when they talk about work-life balance and how they do it all, um, you know, they should also discuss not just the outward facing, but the inward facing and acknowledge what goes on behind the scenes to, to allow them to, to work. Mm -hmm. and, um, because there can be that look of like a woman's doing it all, whether oh, she's exactly. in elected government or whether she's a professional. Um, but there, there is an army of people potentially behind the scenes helping them, whether they're family or whether they are paid workers. That's right. I mean, that, that army component really need, we need to shine a light on that. You know, influencers on Instagram and social media, you know, with millions and some followers posting pictures of their children and whatnot. I mean, they should also be showing the, the, the workers, the help that they have behind the scenes. We call it the care squad. Yeah. We're really recognizing your care squad every chance you get. Sounds like a good and hashtag. I think, we, yeah, I think we should do it together because men should do it as well. I think it's the expectation for women to highlight the person who's taking care of their children or helping take care of their parents and all of this. But men need to recognize all the things that help the women in their lives be successful and expose it more because that's how we're going to shed light on it. It's easy for it to be a woman's issue. Mm -hmm. We need to make this a people's issue. Yeah. And to that point, this is a great example about how gender inequality actually does a disservice to men as well, because 40% of all working family caregivers for the elderly in this, pop in this country are men. And the fact that we've so devalued and made invisible caregivers is actually making all of those, and associated caregiving with women makes all of those men invisible, mm. right? So this is, Caregiving, our care squad in this country is men, women, workers, family members, neighbors, it's all of us. And we have to value it differently for the 21st century. We only have a little bit of time left, but I'd love to hear from each of you uh, challenging things that you've faced with the family working balance and, and what maybe one of the number one challenges that, that you've had to deal with. Oy. <laughs> um. I mean, you know, I touched on it before, but just going into a job every day and not knowing whether or not you are going to get a phone call uh, from the assignment desk telling you that you needed to, to run out the door five minutes ago. Um, you know, my husband travels uh, quite a bit. I have family in town, um, but they're not, you know, my family's not always available. Um, and, and we, have, we have a nanny, but she has a family also, and she has to go home at the end of the day. So I think understanding the whole you know, structure that goes on behind the scenes to allow for you know, that kind of, of work life is really, really important. Um, you know, I ultimately decided that that, that kind of unpredictability uh, was not something that I wanted that I wanted to continue with. Um, so so I, I do think that you know, predictability and flexibility um, are, are incredibly important for women in their professions and mothers. And, and you've built this question of parenting into your, into your life now, into your career life. Yes, so I um, right now am working on building a community, community building and wellness space for mothers. Um, and we're gonna be, it's called Mama Den. And we're gonna be starting with conversations for mothers, by mothers, uh, 
to discuss these, these very issues that we're discussing here, um, for moms to find this network and community of support, their mom friends, uh, so that they don't feel isolated uh, and they feel like they have a support network to be able to tap into. Councilmember Brooks, what's the biggest challenge you faced as a, as a mom doing it all? Because it, really, it seems like you really have done it all. Yes, um, I think I like the word, the panini generation. Sandwich generation gives you a little bit more flexibility to remove some stuff. Mm -hmm. A panini is kind of smushed together. So with me having mm -hmm. um, aging parents that live in Florida, my stepfather passed away a few years ago, um, two sets of parents, you know, and five children. Financially, it had been a struggle trying to make sure when my stepfather was sick, having to fly down to Florida to help my mom with his care. Um, making sure that she's okay now that he's deceased. Also, having children amongst, I think when my stepfather passed away, my 11-year-old was a newborn. Mm -hmm. So putting her on a flight, still transitioning my office into my parents' house to be able to work remotely. Um, and no one talks about that. I think the cost, the financial cost of that, because none of that is covered under any work benefits is just making sure you have the savings to do so and just imagine for families that don't have that you know um, so financially it's like the cost of child care $250 a week that's a lot the price for older care if you want to pay your care attendance for your old elder, elderly parents $15 an hour if you want to be generous you know some people don't pay that mm -hmm. but 15 to $20 an hour to make sure your caregiver is you know fairly compensated Financially, it has definitely been a struggle kind of managing all this over the years of my generation of children. And I think the fact that my children is spread out is kind of a blessing now that, you know, I have a, what did you call it? A support squad? A mm -hmm. care squad. A care squad that belongs to me. So I have older children <laughs> and siblings that I've raised that, you know, it's not as expensive now. But I think about, you know, my daughter and her husband, the cost mm -hmm. of childcare and what it looks like mm -hmm. um, for them. So, yeah, financially, we need to continue to find ways to make um, care giving affordable for working families. Hi, mm -hmm. Um, well, I'm a step-parent uh, for a nine-year-old girl, and I think that a lot of our norms, they're not adequate in terms of supporting parents, but they're also not um, inclusive of all the different types of families that are American, that represent American families. And so in a household where we've got one child with four parents, um, and not everybody is really seen as a parent. Um, that also that also creates its own challenges. So I would say we've got a lot of work to do in our culture and our policies to really reflect who we are as American families today. Well, thank you so much all for being here. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this segment. So thank you to Ai-Jin Poo, Council Member Kendra Brooks, and Juliana Goldman. Thank you so much. Uh, please stay with us. Uh, our next program will begin in just a moment. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.